Hello, fellow ag nerds. Thanks so much for downloading this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich, and this is the show for people who are curious about the intersection of where innovative ideas meet practical realities in food production. I'm trying something brand new today. For the first time ever, I think, uh, I'm releasing two episodes on the same day. Now, I've trimmed each of these two episodes down to only about half of my normal length, so the total time commitment on your part is about the same as a regular week. But if you're a subscriber, you probably already noticed there are two today. Now, this is for several reasons, but mostly I just like to keep things fresh and try something new. This isn't something I'm planning on doing on a regular basis, but, you know, maybe occasionally if you all like it. So please make sure you let me know what you think. Both of today's episodes are about farm data. This one you're about to hear is on the economics of farm data with Dr. Terry Griffin. And the next one is on the analytics of farm data with Aaron Galt from Advanced Agrolytics, which I encourage you to listen to after this one. I've been meaning to bring Dr. Terry Griffin onto the show for quite some time now because he's not only well-researched and data-driven, but as you're about to hear, he's not afraid to explore ideas that may be somewhat unconventional or perhaps even in some circles unpopular. Terry is Associate Professor and Cropping Systems Economist at Kansas State University, where he specializes in farm management and agricultural technology. For his achievements in advancing digital agriculture, he's received the 2014 Pierre C. Robert International Precision Agriculture Young Scientist Award, the 2012 Conservation Systems Precision Ag Researcher of the Year Award, and the 2010 Precision Ag Award of Excellence for Researchers. So I don't know if there's any other Precision Ag Research Award out there, but I'm sure Terry will win that one as well. Uh, Terry and I discuss, among other things, how farm data should be valued, some of the nuances of adoption of variable rate technology, and why he doesn't necessarily advise farmers to jump headfirst into joining any sort of a data service. I'm going to drop you into the conversation, though, where Terry's describing what prompted him to want to go back to school for his PhD, which, of course, led him to the work he does today. So during my master's degree, I was evaluating the profitability of precision agricultural technologies then back in the 90s. I was working a lot with GIS, you know, the, the mapping software, you know, geographic information systems, or you can say geographic information sciences. And doing a lot of that work, and you know, I was running in, into these roadblocks of analyzing yield monitor data and other data that's coming from sensors that we were connecting to GPS units at the time. And and there was really no good way of analyzing the data except by inappropriately applying classical statistics to it. So I wanted to gain the skill set to analyze data coming from combines and cotton pickers and other agricultural equipment. And looking around, and Purdue had, you know, it wasn't just a program, it was more of a small group of professors who were working in this area. And and that's why I, well, one, chose Purdue, and two, wanted to get a PhD was to empower myself to be able to analyze this data. And why? I think this is going to get to a kind of a core question we talk about here today. Why did you want to analyze that data so bad? These sensors are collecting and logging mountains of data, lots of data, more data than we've ever seen before in history. And so it wasn't only the type of data, but it was the amount of data. And farmers were saying, this is great. The maps are great, but 
I don't know how to handle this data. And researchers were saying the same thing. We don't either. And so there's a huge void and opportunity. And that's kind of where I decided to you know, focus on that for the rest of my career was how do we make use of all this data coming from machinery that is available? And we're not even having to go out and collect it now. You know, back in the early 90s, we had to make some uh, deliberate action to, to do so. But now it's there. And we just still had this opportunity. And it's amazing in 20 years how little we've progressed with this. Is part of the question here like, okay, we think this data could be valuable, but it's not. So we need to sort of figure out how to make the data as valuable as we think it should be. Yeah. So one of the things that has been tripping up a lot of people when it comes to valuation of farm data is who are we talking about? So we have winners, we have losers, and most of us in the agriculture community have a farmer hat on, meaning we kind of look at the world through the eyes, through the lens of a farmer and asking the question, how did this benefit the farmer? And that might be the wrong question to ask when we're talking about farm data. I do think that the farmer at the farm level should be a component of this, but not the only player. We have all the way from the venture capitalists chasing this concept of farm data to the multinational companies who are dealing with it to the startups that we see popping up and a lot of them going away on a daily basis to our local crop consultants, whether they're independent or working for a large ag retailer. I mean, they're all different players in this concept of farm data. And asking who will be the ultimate winners is a really good question. And we shouldn't assume that it's all about the farmer. And, you know, in some regards, I could see from a farm perspective, it's kind of like, well, it's our data and they are finding these use cases and they're getting all the value from it and we're not getting any of the value. But on the flip side of that, it's like data is only worth what you can do with it. Maybe there's a more eloquent way of saying that, but how do you look at that struggle between how much should a farmer be rewarded for the data or how much should it go to whoever can utilize it? Now, that's a very interesting debate. Now, you know, I'd kind of like to have a panel of people, you know, and throw out some topics here and see how they respond. But several things on that one, I've used this example before with mechanized agriculture. Okay. So before that, farmers were relying upon animal power to do a lot of the work and they were subsistent to some degree. They, they were raising grain to feed it to the livestock. And one day they had the option of getting a tractor. But what does that mean? Well, you can maybe farm more acres in a year, uh, but you also lose some independence, right? So you have to become dependent upon a fuel supplier that you didn't have before when it was just animal power. They lost some independence, became dependent on a fuel supplier. Uh, but fast forward a few years, what happened to the animal power farmers? They just eventually went away, right? So it may have been a short-term solution not to adopt mechanized agriculture, but it was not a long-term sustainable decision. And I think that's sort of the same way now. You know, it's given up some independence by sharing farm data with other parties. But, you know, looking forward to the next couple of decades, you know, it's just a matter of time before this 
concept is uh, can ubiquitous. You know, those who try to remain independent may do so in the short term, but it may not be a long-term sustainable decision. The ability to exclude others from accessing a intangible digital good, such as data, is limited by if it's already been shared. So if a landowner says, hey, I'd like to have a copy of the as-applied fertility data so you know, I can uh, pay for my share, or they may just say, I'd like to have a copy of the yield monitor data from my archive, and a farmer has two choices, and one of them is not to farm that land anymore. And once that data has been shared, the ability to exclude others from accessing it has been greatly diminished. You know, they really have no control over who gets access to it because all it takes is uh, you know, forwarding an email with an attachment and near costless uh, ability to make copies. Right. And once it's copied, it's completely out of their control. Yeah, it's completely out of their control. So... You know, as an economist, we, we look at public and private goods. You know, if you remember your econ 101 classes, a private good is something you own and it's something you can exclude others from. And then a public good is something that is like national defense. We enjoy it, but we cannot exclude anybody else from also enjoying that national defense. And you know, where does data fall? It's not either one, really. It's kind of a weird product here we're talking about. And one of the things I think that trips up agriculturalists, whether it's crop consultants and farmers, is that we as humans tend to think of ownership the way we consider a pencil or land or livestock. And that's not a really good litmus test for ownership of data. The rules, the legal aspects of that do not apply to intangible goods like data. And we, we tend to want to save farmers' own data coming from their equipment and farm fields. But in reality, talking to the ag attorneys, we published on this. Drake University has a, a journal of agricultural law. And in 2019, we, we published an article on it, you know, just pointing out that we don't think American law, federal, or even anywhere any of the states cover this concept of ownership when it comes to intangible goods like data. Is there any particular data point or set of data points that you think in general farmers are underutilizing for their own management decisions? I think about that a lot, and I would like to think so, but maybe not. And the reason is... Automatic guidance has been adopted fairly quickly. Uh, it's one of the newer technologies out there. You know, it hasn't been around as long as yield monitors. But those automated technologies have been adopted a lot quicker, partly because they come with new sprayers and tractors and combines. I would say that, you know, variable rate fertility and some of those technologies would be, as you described, as being underutilized. But I also have to keep in mind that Successful farm operations know what they're doing. And if they're not adopting some technologies, there's a reason. It may not be profitable for them. Or there may not be uh, sufficient human capital to devote to that technology. You know, variable rate is not necessarily plug and play. It takes some effort. 
And, you know, whether the human capital is on the farm, being a farm operator or employee, or even, you know, at arm's length, being a crop consultant or ag retailer locally, there may not be the human capital available to devote to making that work for that farm. And I, I just have to have confidence that farmers are making the right decision for themselves. So I, I don't know if there's anything that's underutilized, but the variable rate adoption is a lot lower than what we would have expected. And, you know, there's been some debate about, you know, the, the valuation of that farm data, and it's going to come down to how we use it. And not all farm operators will have that same skill set to make use of it. You know, I do expect ubiquitous variable rate adoption in the future, but I don't expect it in 2021, and I don't expect it with the current set of farm operators we have today. But sometime in the future, I do expect it to become ubiquitous. And how does that happen? You know, how do the operators get the training they need to utilize these tools? You know, it's interesting. So in extension, we, we offer some uh, workshops on cleaning yield monitor data, which is one of the more tedious things that kind of gets skipped. And we are researchers, industry, you know, everybody at the table have been trying to automate that tedious process, remove the human from it. You know, historically, we automate processes uh, that eliminate unskilled labor, you know, ditch digging and you know, that kind of thing which is good, but, you know, it'd be almost better if we, you know, re replaced human capital that was more expensive, more tedious, you know, dealing with software, cleaning yield monitor data. But there is some work being done in that area. Some companies, I think, are employing uh, the ability to clean yield monitor data in a sophisticated, rigorous way without human intervention. That's becoming real, real important to what we're doing. One of the things I see with variable rate, I just had a paper uh, written and accepted. It's going to be coming out this spring in spring of 2021 in the Journal of Applied Farm Economics, which is a relatively new farm management journal at a Purdue University. And a gerontologist and I, uh, her name is Lavana Trawick. She's at Arkansas Colleges for Health Education. She and I wrote about why farmers do and do not adopt variable rate technology. It goes back to, you know, a lot of farmers may not see it as profitable for them or they may not have the human capital available on the farm. And so we started investigating the notion of third-party services. And I've been kind of paying attention to uh, some of these offerings. And it seems to be some, I don't know, debate about the right way of doing variable rate. And it's kind of like everybody saying that everybody else is doing it wrong. Only, you know, my service has the ability to do this right. And, you know, essentially what happens is, you know, if I'm a farmer, I'm just frustrated because if they're not able to make it work, then maybe I'm not either. So I'm just going to wait until the dust settles. So we're seeing, you know, that friction in the service providers right now. Yeah, I, th I think that... I've noticed that with ag tech, it's like everybody else is horrible and I, I'm the only one who's got it figured out. And of course that can't be true in every case. <laughs> right. 
Um, you mentioned kind of in some cases, variable rate is the right way to go. In, in other cases, maybe it's not. What are the factors that determine whether a farmer should be adopting it? it you know, when is it a no-brainer? Is it, it have to do with the variability of the farm itself? That has a lot to do with the variability of the soil and, and the history of, of the farm. We could argue, we know what the costs are of doing variable rate. We can, you know, get the maps. We know what the, how much fertility we're going to put on every grid cell or every zone. And we know the cost of application. We know that the fees that we got to pay to the service providers. What we don't know is the benefits, right? Well, in addition to profitability and the cost benefit analysis, economists are concerned about risk management. And a lot of times we assume uh, incorrectly, we assume that farmers are completely risk neutral, meaning that they will swing for the fences every time and you know try to go for max profit, max yield, you know, just maximize things all the time. And that's just not the case. You know, farmers, farm operators are they're not you know always businesses; they're they're humans making this decision, and and some are more risk averse than others. You know, they're they're not you know the types of folks who who uh, take a bunch of gambles all, all the time. So if I'm really risk averse, you know, I could apply a uniform rate of fertility across the field. And some places I'm probably pretty close to being right. Some places are going to be clearly wrong. Uh, it's kind of like a, a broken clock is correct twice a day, sort of that analogy. But what if I come up with a rebel rate prescription for my field does that improve the chances of being right or do I increase the chances of being wrong everywhere? Well, if I'm really risk averse, then you know, I don't want to pay a fee to increase the probability of being wrong. And so it's going to be the risk preference of the farm operator that's going to influence some of these decisions as well. I get some pushback from, from people when I, when I give that example because theoretically verbal rate is supposed to be correct everywhere. But, you know, like we're talking about, you know, the different services would provide a different prescription map. Okay. So both of them can't be right if they're both different. And if you bring in a third service provider, it may actually have a third prescription map that would be recommended for that field. And so it's going to depend on a lot of things. And you've seen that in some cases where that, I mean, you're just better off with the uniform rate. It possibly, and you know, depends on the variability of the field. And you know, this concept goes back. Oh, Gary Schnicky uh, is on faculty at Illinois, and he had a conference paper back early nineties. Uh, he and Jeff Hopkins, Jeff Hopkins of this is with USDA now, um, and they wrote about this. You know, the idea is one is you know it's a verbal rate, and then you have a extension recommendation uniform rate, and then the third one is sort of a informed uniform rate based upon the grid soil sampling. And, you know, they were doing some break-evens about the amount of variability that was necessary in the field in order for the uniform rate to still be superior to the variable rate. Terry, I want to give you a chance to leave it open-ended here. Anything you want to address you were either hoping to talk about that I didn't get us to or anything you want to add on to that we talked about? No, sure. Uh, one, one of the big questions I get uh, from farmers, you know, they'll call and ask me, well, you know, we got all these farm data companies and services, and I, I just don't know which one to join. You know, I feel all this, you know, pressure that, that I need to do something now. And I remind them that, you know, if you don't see a clear benefit right now of joining 
a farm data service, then you, you shouldn't. You know, it, it's an economic decision. If the benefits of joining, and when I say joining, that you know includes relinquishing control of farm data. If you don't see benefits from doing so immediately, at least benefits that way, the cost of doing so, just wait. You're not in a hurry. The reason farmers feel like they're in a hurry is that the farm data services are in a race with each other, and it's a winner-take-all type of uh, race. And so they're trying to build their uh, archive of more farmers, you know, growers, farmers, fields, uh, acres sooner. And those who are able to do so will have a good chance of being the winner. They're in a hurry, so they're trying to push the uh, feeling of uh, hurriedness to the farmer. But farmers, you're, you're not in a hurry you know, as always, make sure that the benefits outweigh the cost. And if not, you're, you're maybe better off to wait. And eventually, the solution will present itself. Well, thank you so much to Dr. Terry Griffin for being on the show. I enjoyed that conversation. And make sure you stay tuned for our next episode, which is with Aaron Gall of Advanced Agrolytics, to continue on with similar themes, but a new perspective. You can learn more about Terry's work and read his blog over at www.spaceplowboy.com, which is a great name. And he's also Space Plowboy on Twitter. He's a great follow there as well. But stay tuned for this next episode on Farm Data Analytics with Aaron Galt. Hopefully you've already got it downloaded in the queue and we'll talk to you then. Oh, 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 oh,